ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Damien Carrick with you. This is The Law Report. Coming up, the ACT Board of Inquiry report into the prosecution of Bruce Lehrman. First, with the Voice to Parliament referendum just a few months away, it appears many Australians are still undecided about how they'll vote. There are public conversations taking place all around the country, organised by both the official Yes and No campaigns. Many other organisations, such as Indigenous land councils, are also holding meetings. Now, the Uluru Dialogue, the group that drafted the Uluru Statement from the Heart, is holding its own series of grassroots meetings all across Australia. Alwyn Lyle is a Kuku Yalanji traditional owner. He's based at Almaden, which is a town of about 30 people near Chiligo in far north Queensland. He's a community member of the Uluru Dialogue. And Eddie Sinnott is a Wamba Wamba man, a law lecturer at Griffith University in Brisbane. He's a senior engagement officer with the Uluru Dialogue. The pair are currently speaking at small gatherings of on average about 20 to 30 people in communities across far north Queensland, from Cooktown in the north down to Ingham in the south. Eddie Sinnott and Alwyn Lyle, good to talk to both of you. Thank you. Yeah, good to talk to you. Thanks for having us. Alwyn Lyle, what questions do people have? For those ones that are sitting on the fence and undecided at the moment, what I find is that a lot of them think that the voice will create a division, whereas we came up with the voice for totally the opposite. The voice is, is something that will make Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples living together so much better. And like we say to everybody at our meetings, by having a voice in Parliament, we won't be kicking anybody out of their house, we won't be taking over anybody's land, and it's only about the decisions that government make about Indigenous people, we believe we should be at the table. Yeah, it's that kind of stuff that Owen's talking about when people come. They have the general questions about division. And I think there is a, like, a pretty decent size that do come that are fence-sitters or are leaning towards no. Presumably you're having pretty robust conversations with people who are, are going to vote no. You want to you have that dialogue with them. What are some of those conversations like? They must be quite tricky. We really encourage people who have any doubts or any negative questions that they want to ask, we really encourage them to come along to our sessions so that we can hear what the questions are and Mm. we can give the best reply or the most honest reply that we can in regards to that because our voice has three major concerns and that is the incarceration rate of our people the homelessness of our people, the overcrowding in housing and that sort of stuff. And all of those, like the overcrowding and the employment opportunities, we really need to have a better way to deal with it than the way that government has been looking after our issues for the last 100 years. Nothing has really worked properly for us. The like really robust conversations where there have been like even hard no people or the naysayers, I think have turned out to be some of our better forums because we're actually able to really get down into the nitty-gritty of what the arguments are and talk about them. And, you know, as Alwyn's saying right then, we can actually talk to people where social dysfunction comes from. You know, we've had a lot of people, well, not a lot, but a few at these 
forum say everyone's got the same opportunities in Australia. Why don't you just, you know, the kind of lift yourself up by a bootstrap kind of thing. So being able to talk about the things that Alan was talking about, about overcrowded housing, about incarceration, about, you know, not having driver's licence, about all the capacity and resources that we need in our community to actually take up those opportunities. And so, you know, being able to say to people when they say to us, oh, well, money's wasted or you guys don't look after it, all these other kind of things. And there have, you know, there have been some pretty blunt things said to us and asked of us, but being able to have that opportunity to engage in those conversations and actually explain to people that there are reasons these things exist and try and impress upon them that whether we agree about the reasons for why things exist as they are. We want change. And I think most people and the overwhelming thing we've experienced up here is that people can see that things are broken and they want change. People coming to these meetings, they're non-Indigenous, they're Indigenous, a spread of people who live in far north Queensland. Are there many Indigenous people who say, we want a treaty first, we don't care about the voice? I mean, is that is that something that you're hearing? No. No, no we haven't been hearing that treaty conversation too much but we are aware that there's some people out there that prefer to go down that path and for me the reason why it stepped out in that three-step process is because one the voice will actually help the treaty process get across the floor better and it'll also help the truth-telling yeah our very first meeting that we had in Atherton was probably the the main one where that's come up and it was very specific with the family group that showed up that they were against the voice and that the voice shouldn't happen at all and it should be sovereignty and treaty and even some disagreements against treaty as well that treaty would be ceding sovereignty and stuff too so it's even then it's provided an opportunity for us to actually be able to talk about well what is the reality of treaty and i mean we had one young man in particular at Karanda, who, after listening to our presentation, um, spoke at the end about originally being in a position where he wasn't supportive and he wanted sovereignty and treaty first, but he didn't really understand what the voice was about. And having had the opportunity to be able to listen to us and ask us questions about the impact and how it would work, that he was prepared to vote yes at the end of that. And, um, you know, for us, they're the kind of experiences and opportunities, especially with other Indigenous people, I think, that have kept us going these last four months, especially through some of the harder conversations as well. So you reckon that you are shifting people's thinking? Yeah, I think so. And it's been amazing for me as an outsider, I guess, in far north Queensland to be able to travel around and do this with Alwyn and to watch his experience. Like, I don't think there are many people in far north Queensland that would know the communities and the people better up here, and that's black and white. Um, so, you know, people are able to ask questions of someone that lives in the same community as them, has had the same experiences, has worked the same jobs, has worked the same cattle stations. And then they're able to ask questions of me as well about the policy detail, about those kind of things. And so even that stuff that Alan was talking about before, some of those people will say, well, how come we can't do that now? And so we're able to bring that local experience, but then talk about the reality of, you know, where Indigenous interests end up on the policy cycle and how come we're not able to do it now and how a voice will be able to help. And, you know, I want to know how often talk about people's body language and you can see the way they interact and the way they change going from arms crossed and being really closed at the start of the session to leaning forward to asking questions and to engaging with conversations. And 
even on a personal level, I've seen a couple of people who realise they've got a connection to Alwyn's father or grandfather or something like that. And it just adds a whole other personal element to the dialogue and the conversation. And I, and I think it's that human dialogue element that we're talking about with the voice about having a respectful relationship and actually being able to use that to drive change, where I think we, we have been able to have an impact and be able to get people on board for a yes vote. The Uluru Dialogue people are conducting meetings all around the country, but of course, everywhere is different, right? Like, there's a lot of native title, I understand, up up in this region, North Queensland, a lot of um, Indigenous land use agreements. Do you think that the existence of that impacts on how people, Indigenous people and non-Indigenous people, are responding to this conversation around the voice? So with native title, even though it can be very limited and we talk about the limitations all the time and, and the need for policy change, you've at least got that recognition that you exist and that there's some dignity and respect that comes with that. And in a lot of other places and similar to where my family have come from in, in New South Wales and down in Victoria, we have land rights, but it's statutory based and we don't have native title, so it's different. Whereas one of my experiences as an outsider up here has been you know, there's a lot in place up here already where the voice would be able to come in immediately and be able to amplify those voices and help drive it. And I think it has had an impact on the kind of questions that we get and the kind of way people see this. It's just a natural thing, I think, for a lot of blackfellas up here to see something like the voice as being something that could help them amplify their um, voice and amplify their issues with some of those areas. Whereas with my own family and some of the areas down south, I think there is more suspicion around something like that and in being able to trust, not that there isn't trust issues with government up here, there is there is everywhere. Um, but because of that lack of recognition in many ways as well, and, you know, it's something we talk about in our forums that it's so important as part of this voice part that the relationship that we're actually trying to establish is based on the respect and dignity that comes from recognition. So you're saying that because there's a lot of native title, that gives you a place at the table when it comes to decision making, even though you might not have, you know, exclusive possession or total control. I mean, you can't sort of, for instance, stop mining or veto mining, but you can have a dialogue, you can make representations, you're entitled to do that under this system. And you're saying that's sort of what will happen with the voice as well. That's right. Like, when you look at the amount of money that's been outlaid by government every year for the last 30 years, every Aboriginal family in this country should own their own home. There's no reason why we should be living in overcrowding and homelessness and all the rest of it. For some reason, the government has made industry, which we call the black industry, and like all the money that government put out there for Indigenous affairs every year, they say only 30% of that money actually gets down to the ground and, and actually does anything. All the rest of that money is tied up in administration and people being employed to actually deliver these services. So, like, I think it's a bit of fake news when they talk about all the money that comes towards Indigenous people. Before I let you go, I mean, are there also questions around the structure of the voice that they'll be decided after the referendum and if there's a positive outcome. Is that an issue that's coming up in these conversations? It is, but we find when we go through our presentation, people are comfortable with the explanation that we give about how the amendment is structured and the design principles that were released by the government at the same time. So I think the number one concern across black and white is that it will actually be representative of the community and the community will be empowered by it. 
So they don't want the same old faces or the same structures. And going all the way back to the original dialogues with the Uluru Statement from the heart, the overwhelming feeling was that current structures and processes are failing our people. So it was about having that independent representation. And so there hasn't been, you know, more of the detail things come down to you know, you've got 11 representatives now, why do you need something else? Not so much about... Members of parliament, yeah? Yeah, sorry. Not so much about how many representatives or what will be the process. What I would like to say, though, is like those 11 parliamentarians, Indigenous parliamentarians, and this is what we say all the time, is those guys are either bound by Liberal coalition policies or they're bound by Labor policies or the Greens policies. We don't have anybody in there that are bound by Indigenous policies. At the end of the day, we want somebody up there representing us, putting representations to government that have Indigenous interests foremost and they are the main reason why those people are there. We want to have an opportunity to nominate our own grassroots people to get up there and and make those representations to government on our behalf. And like legislation, if we don't get it right the first time, we tear it up and we do it again. I mean, it's that concern overwhelmingly that's been shared by Indigenous and non-Indigenous up here about the community actually having independent representation and that comes from a place of authority, is accountable and transparent to the community. Alwyn Lyle, Kuku Yalanji man, uh, community member of the Uluru Dialogue, and, and Eddie Sinnott, a Wamba Wamba man, law lecturer at Griffith University and senior engagement officer with the Uluru Dialogue. Look, thank you both for speaking to the Law Report. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us, mate. Cheers. Damien Carrick with you. This is the Law Report. You can follow us on the ABC Listen app. The ACT government is obtaining legal advice on whether to bring charges over the leaking of the Board of Inquiry report into the prosecution of former Liberal staffer Bruce Lerman over the alleged rape of Brittany Higgins in federal parliament in 2019. That effective leaking was by the head of the inquiry, Walter Sofronoff KC, a highly respected judge, a former president of the Queensland Court of Appeal. Karen Middleton is the chief political correspondent for the Saturday paper. She's covered this story for many years. Karen Middleton, it was hoped the inquiry would provide clarity and resolution, but it has become another chapter in this deeply contentious saga. What was the Board of Inquiry report designed to do? Well, Damien, the Chief Minister, when he spoke about the Board of Inquiry report last week, said that it was meant to draw a line under the matters around the prosecution of Bruce Lerriman, and by inference, it had not done that, or it had only partially done that. It was designed to look into the the whole prosecution. We know that Bruce Lerriman was charged with one count of raping his then-colleague, Brittany Higgins. Now, that was an alleged offence from 2019. The charges were eventually brought. He pleaded not guilty and there was a trial late last year in the ACT Supreme Court which was aborted due to juror misconduct. There were issues raised around the whole process from before the charging, through the charging, the trial itself and then afterwards... And the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, raised concerns in a letter to police about how it had been handled. He suggested that police had undermined his uh, 
attempts to prosecute, that they'd resisted him, and he also suggested there'd been political interference. And these raised enough concerns that the ACT government decided to appoint a board of inquiry to look into the whole thing. And this board of inquiry, effectively a royal commission, was headed by Walter Sofronoff uh, KC. Do we know why Walter Sofronoff KC gave embargoed copies of his report to the Australian newspaper and the ABC? And how did that move, which is acknowledged, force the hand of the ACT government? Well, ACT Chief Minister Andrew Barr said that he had written to Mr Sofronoff to ask the question, why did this happen? How did this happen? And that Mr Sofronoff acknowledged that he had given a copy to a newspaper columnist. Now, we know that that was Janet Albrechtson from The Australian and that he'd given it to a broadcast journalist who was Elizabeth Byrne from the ABC. Andrew Barr says it was given first to Janet Albrechtson and that occurred before it had even been delivered to the government. And under the ACT Inquiries Act, that is Mr Sofronoff's obligation to report back to the government that commissioned him. So Janet Albrechtson was given the report first, then the ACT government got it, and then it seems the ABC got it. All of this occurred before it had been formally published. So he'd given out these embargoed copies. He told Mr Barr that it was because he had formed the view from his previous experience that there were journalists that you could trust and whose ethics meant that you could have discussions with them and brief them and that that would improve the accuracy of the reporting and that this is the reason, he says, he handed it out. It's not clear... Uh, We haven't seen the correspondence yet, but it's not clear what the timeline was about, why he felt that he needed to give it to a journalist or a columnist before he gave it to the ACT government, but that was the reason that he gave. And the Australian newspaper then published details from the report. They, I think, maintained that they didn't breach the embargo. They somehow obtained a copy via another avenue. I think that's what they're, they're saying. And then I think following that, the ABC published as well. And that forced the ACT government to an early release of the full report, uh, I think, last week. So the ACT government's now seeking advice on whether providing the report to the media was a breach of the ACT Inquiries Act. What charges could it be laid? Well, there's a provision in the ACT Inquiries Act that if the arrangements are breached in terms of who it should go to and its publication occurs not in the way that it's supposed to, there's a potential penalty of up to six months in jail and or a fine. So the ACT government is looking at that. Now, it had faced some criticism before the report was even handed to the government about the timeline it was proposing to adhere to before it made the report public. Under the actual legislation, it had a month to consider the report formulate its own response, contact parties that were adversely affected, and then publish. And that is actually contained in the legislation. Now, there was criticism that that was too long, but that was what what the law said. So that was what it was proposing to do. And then this all got circumvented by the early publication, and so it brought its own response forward. The argument from the ACT government is that this has potentially denied procedural fairness to people because it was published before some of those parties had even received it. I know that DPP Shane Drumgold said he hadn't seen it. The police had said they had not yet seen it. So it undid the process that was supposed to be in train. There is now examination via the government seeking legal advice, as you say, about whether the Act was breached, who might have breached it, what the manner of that breach might be and what the consequences might be, and we haven't had the result of that examination yet. 
And you say that uh, you're aware that there have also been referrals to the ACT Integrity Commission as well arising from, from these events. Yeah, that's my understanding, that it's been raised with the ACT Integrity Commission. Now, I'm told the ACT government has not done that. It may in future do that, but it hasn't at this stage. But the Integrity Commission in the ACT, like its new federal counterpart, can receive referrals from from other people. And so it has been raised with them, as I understand it. Okay, can we take a step back? Uh, Bruce Lerman has always maintained his innocence. The criminal trial against him ended because of juror misconduct and there was no second trial because of the prosecution's concerns over the toll over another trial on Brittany Higgins' mental health. Now, while the ACT government is angry about the premature release of the report. It stresses that it has confidence in the contents of that report. So what were the findings and the recommendations of this Commission of Inquiry? It made a range of findings and recommendations, 10 recommendations in all, most of which, well, almost all of which the ACT government, even in a preliminary sense, has accepted. They go to things like what the threshold should be for charging someone with a sexual assault. There was a problem and confusion on the police side about when somebody should be charged and shouldn't be charged, and we heard evidence that there was disagreement between police and the prosecution as to whether that charge should have been laid at all. So he wants a a revision and a clear determination of the steps that should be followed to determine whether the threshold has been met. He says there should be greater steps taken to make it very clear um, the status of what are called protected confidences, things like Brittany Higgins' counselling notes and when they can be accessed and when they should not be because in this case they were wrongly given to both the defence and the prosecution. So Mr Sofronoff recommends training of, of police in handling those protected confidences and training in general in dealing with these kinds of sexual assault matters so that the rules are clearer because there's it's been exposed that there were uh, grey areas uh, around this whole process and then a sort of a set of rules about um, how briefs are labelled when they're handed to defence and prosecution so that it's clear what's in them and what should and shouldn't be in them and a new set of rules on how police can liaise with representatives of the defence so that it's it's very clear that, that nothing untoward is going on. So all the focus really is on changes to to rules governing these kinds of processes and changes to training for police. And what findings did uh, Walter Sofronoff make with respect to Shane Drumgold SC, the, the, the Director of Public Prosecutions? He's made some very damning findings about Shane Drumgold In fact, they're very serious. He stops short of recommending that Mr Drumgold be struck off as a barrister and terminated as the Director of Public Prosecutions, but he has included as appendices to his report all of the adverse findings that he proposed that he might make and then all the responses that each of those parties gave to him in return. He gave them an opportunity to comment and then he modified some of his findings. He accepted Mr Drumgold's argument that that, making those recommendations in particular would go beyond his brief, his terms of reference, so he did not stipulate that. Um, But, of course, Mr Drumgold has now resigned 
anyway, and his resignation's been accepted as a result of these findings. He did find that he had acted grossly unethically, particularly in his questioning of Senator Linda Reynolds, the then minister, and her role and what, what he suggested was leading questioning when she was in the witness box at the criminal trial. And he found that he knowingly lied to the Chief Justice of the ACT Supreme Court during the trial processes, Justice Lucy McCallum, uh, in relation to his knowledge around a number of matters, including the uh, dealings that he had with Lisa Wilkinson from Channel 10's uh, correspondent who had given a speech at the Logie Awards that ended up um, seeing that trial delayed. So they are very, very damning findings about Shane Drumgold. And as a result, he's off his resignation and the ACT government has accepted it. And the ACT government is also considering legal action against him. I'm wondering how the premature release of the inquiry report might impact on that process. Well, it's hard to tell. There are now two processes in train. There's consideration, according to the ACT government, of whether there needs to be any legal action against Shane Drumgold for the likes of perverting the course of justice for the for the things that the Board of Inquiry have found that he did, did do and didn't do that he should have. And then there's a question of whether there should be any action against Mr Sofronoff and anybody else for the early release and publication of the report. Now, you know, dealing with Mr Drumgold, they have examined what they say were 18 cases that he had been involved with other than this one to check that there had been nothing untoward in those cases. The government says it's confident there's no evidence that he had done anything untoward in any of the other cases, so they are restricting their examination to just his handling of this case and whether there needs to be action taken in relation to that. And then separately, this whole issue of the early release and the and the Inquiries Act and whether there's been a breach. The inquiry into the inquiry. Finally, Karen Middleton, how do you reflect on, on this? I mean, you've been following this um, extraordinary saga for many years now. Well, it's a terrible outcome for everybody. The fact that the trial collapsed meant that neither the complainant nor the defendant really got justice in either direction, because there was no resolution. Um, The whole thing has played out in the media from the very beginning because Brittany Higgins chose to go to the media before she gave her policing interview, and that has clearly coloured the police view of her whole complaint. And now Bruce Lerriman is going to the media having his moment talking about it. I think reflecting on it, I mean, it's, it's a disastrous sort of rolling scandal, I suppose. But reflecting on the report, what's puzzling to me is that it is very, very strong against Shane Drumgold and it does make some legitimate criticisms of what he did. But the language is very pejorative and quite contemptuous. And it doesn't make as strong criticisms of the police behaviour, which is a little bit puzzling because police wrongly gave these private counselling notes to both the defence and the prosecution, wrongly directly served a brief on the defence when it should have gone through the prosecution and did a number of things that they clearly shouldn't have done. And Mr Sofronoff's conclusion is, oh, well, they were mistakes, they should have better training. So it's it's just interesting that, that he is much more forgiving of the errors on the police side and doesn't see anything willful or malicious in those, but he does see willful problems with what Shane Drumgold did and every every small thing that he has concerns about with Mr Drumgold has been illuminated and addressed directly. So it is a report that goes very much 
in one direction and while it raises questions about police training and and the law and the, the rules that they're operating under going forward, it has avoided making specific criticisms, even though in its adverse, potential adverse findings, the, the ones that he initially raised, he, he made some pretty strong criticisms about police and the fact that they didn't interrogate Bruce Lerriman as much as they interrogated Brittany Higgins, and yet those were not really included in any detail in the final report, and that's not explained. So it does seem a little strange to me that there is this imbalance in the findings, but there's no question that, that there are serious findings against Mr Drumgold, the DPP. Karen Middleton, Chief Political Correspondent for the Saturday Paper. Thank you. Thank you for speaking to The Law Report. Thanks, Damien. That's all we have time for on The Law Report. A big thank you to producer Christina Kukolia and to sound engineer Brendan O'Neill. I'm Damien Carrick. Talk to you next time with more law. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.